0: This is Farms, Food, Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson.
1: And co-presenting this edition, I'm Michelle Tang.
0: In Podcast 42, we're focusing on all things innovative. First, we'll be hearing from IFAD's Associate Vice President, Donald Brown, about how we're doing development better and more sustainably for farmers in developing countries. We'll also be talking to the people behind Are They News and their super app for farmers.
1: Then we have Recipes for Change chef Pierre Thiam. He'll be telling us all about Farnio an ancient grain from West Africa now making its way, with his help, onto the aisles at, among other stores, Whole Foods in the U.S. Plus, we find out how worm poo or worm manure can be used to purify water. All that from the people at BioFiltro. After that, we continue our ongoing series of reports from the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development. This time we're in London to talk about the importance of having accessible, accurate and timely data on agriculture and food systems. With Claire Malamet at the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data.
0: Also in episode 42, we've news from Green Ant and how they're helping rural communities with reforestation efforts. And our newest Recipes for Change chef joins us. Chef Juan Quintero, originally from Colombia but now running a Michelin-starred restaurant in Italy, talks to us about how important sustainability is in his kitchen. Also, the final part of our series on climate change and small-scale farming communities in Bangladesh.
1: You can listen to the rest of these brilliant reports from Bangladesh in podcast episodes 36, 38, 39, 40 and 41. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at efat.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please rate us. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson. Innovation in farming is one thing, but are small-scale farmers as innovative as the rest?
0: Donald Brown is IFAD's associate vice president. He has his finger on the pulse of operations in the field, and there's no one better to talk to about how small-scale farmers are working smarter. Donald, thank you very much for joining us on Farm's Food Future. This month we're we're all about the innovation in agriculture. Looking at that, sometimes smallholder agriculture is portrayed as lacking innovation. In your experience, is that really
2: the case? Thank you, great topic uh, for this edition. Um, Innovation is key in agriculture. And as you say, sometimes people do not see small farmers as innovating. And I would say it's not the case at all. Some of the most interesting innovations come from small farmers. For example, in several of our projects, we see that the EFAD target groups are utilising more sustainable practices which benefit both the environment and improve livelihoods. So uh, there's a real focus on climate smart water management practices. Um, additionally, you see innovation, for example, in using better materials. One of our projects in Burundi, focusing on intensifying crop and livestock farming, for example, farmers there are using degradable banana leaves to replace plastic to protect the young banana plants, which not only reduces pollution, but reduces plastic imports and actually creates local jobs. Another example is the increasing use of biofertilizers and improved seed varieties, especially in the face of the supply shocks from the ongoing global food crisis and the war in Ukraine. So in Malawi, there's a project which promotes um, the use of biofertilizers in legumes. These biofertilisers can, produ- can be produced locally and at much lower cost to the imported inorganic fertilisers. So uh, improve affordability and sustainability. Another exciting area for small farmers is the use of digital technologies. EFAD has its own dedicated digital technology strategy to try and ensure we really focus on this. So, for example, under our rural poor stimulus facility, um, one of the responses we had there to COVID saw that we were scaling up successful practices in information sharing systems so that pharma got got agricultural advice over the uh, mobile, got early warning on weather over the mobile, and also had access over the mobile to financial services and market information. So they're just a few examples of really good smallholder innovation.
0: What would be your main advice to someone looking to transfer new technologies to small scale farmers in order to make them work better?
2: This is really, really important. Because there's a lot of advanced technology out there and innovation, but it's very often not adaptive for small farmers uh, or sensitive to the context. So my advice to anyone in this field, and I think it's really going to be a really important issue for COP28 in the United Arab Emirates, where there's a focus on food systems, but also on technology, is any you know any technology has to be adaptive for small farmers. It must understand the social context. So for example, in the context of digital advisory services in Pakistan that I just uh, mentioned, push calls were seen as the best way to ensure digital advisory services reach women farmers who often don't have the same access to telephones. And in this context, usually calls are received at the household level where men and women can listen together. Um, The enabling business environment is also really, really important. Um, So, for example, scaling up abilities of small farmers to utilize digital financial services in places like Nepal or Honduras. Um, You also need to strengthen the business environment in tandem. So, for example, this means strengthening local banks' ability to actually provide digital um, financial services. In Cambodia, we've been doing that by working with the private sector so they're they're just a couple of issues it's not a straightforward transfer you need to adapt it and you need to make it affordable and acceptable uh, to the context and the farmers themselves
0: so it's been quite a time over the past few years with covid conflict and and now rising prices what what message would you have for donor governments on the importance of of supporting small-scale farmers moving forward and the risks if we don't do that
2: this is so central. If we've learned anything over the crisis, whether it was COVID or whether it was the war in Ukraine, it's that global supply networks and markets are very fragile, and local uh, production and local markets and regional markets are central to food security and to sustainable food systems. And in that context, smallholders play probably the most uh, pivotal uh, role. Um, Smallholder farmers in some parts of Asia and sub-Saharan Africa produce over 80 percent of the food and globally over 30 percent. So they are absolutely central to sustainable food systems. But smallholder farmers also bear the brunt of the impacts, whether it's, uh, as I say, Uh, climate change, whether it's conflict, and it's often the poorest who suffer most in that context. So therefore, we will not have sustainable food systems we will not have food security globally if we're not looking at uh, smallholder farmers and what they can bring to that side of things. And if we don't support smallholder farmers, for example, in adapting to climate change, their livelihoods will be impossible in the current context, the Sahel or elsewhere. And they will have to move and they will have to move migrate to cities to other countries. Um, so not only is it an issue about food security, it's also an issue about migration, which 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 needs to be um, factored in here. Again, the importance of of, uh, supporting poor rural communities and smallholder farmers is absolutely key. And we have to ensure that uh, restriction movements, uh, disrupted local and global markets, all these sorts of things, uh, as we look for solutions, take into account smallholder farmers. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
0: Coming up, we have more innovation on offer here at Farms Food Future.
1: This is Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson. Today, we're joined by Shalom Ben-Or, CEO of Ava News, a fintech company that has a financial super app for agri-small and medium-sized enterprises.
0: Our reporter, Michelle mckenna Wimby talks to him about the inspiration behind Aave News how they ensure accessibility and user-friendliness for their clients, and their plans for expansion and scaling up their services in the future.
3: My name is Shalom Ben-Oh. I'm the CEO of Avenues, a fintech company for the agriculture industry, where we provide small to medium-sized agribusinesses with the financial super app for a one-stop shop for the financing we provide short-term working capital for these businesses which are wholesalers traders exporters and also inputs retailers allowing them to buy the commodity they need in order to then sell and of course make sure the supply chain works in the best and most efficient way
4: What inspired the creation of the Avenues Financial Super App?
3: We come from, from an agricultural background and we were really intrigued to understand and solve the issues lying within the agriculture industry, which eventually it's the lack of capital. It was um, something we saw from afar, that agriculture in Africa is a very important industry and also a very big one but still suffer from lack of funding that it requires in order to push and feed the, the continent and then the globe. And this is what inspire us to come and introduce Avenues and see how we can you know, close the financing gap that exists.
4: So tell us, how does Avenues work to ensure that its financial and business management tools are accessible and user-friendly for agri SMEs?
3: It's a great question, Michelle, and we really believe in localization of our products. Uh, and through our experience working in, in Africa, especially in Kenya for the past four years, um, we managed to really create a superior product experience for our clients. And we also, together with our local team, continuing uh, to improve the experience and the accessibility of our app, allowing very fast movement from um, pages and, of course, creating uh, a very fast onboarding process that allowing our clients to get, if they're eligible, get the capital they need within number of days. So we are doing it very, very
5: fast.
4: And in your opinion, what role do FinTech solutions like AV play in driving sustainable development and economic growth in the agriculture sector.
3: We believe fintechs such, such as avenues, when they come to play a role within the agriculture industry, they create and bring the liquidity, in the supply chain uh, required. And, and with that, it's really tripled down also to the farmers and to the communities, the rural communities that these SMEs are operating in what it's created, it's a network effect that, you know, bring prosperity um, through capital. And what we're seeing already in our clients is that they employ five to 25 employees. And through our our capital, they can grow the business, employ more, buy from more farmers. And we see the impact it's generating. And I think this is a really an important role that our fintechs can, can and should play.
4: My last question would be, how does News plan to expand and scale its services in the future?
3: We're planning to expand through embedding ourselves further within the the agricultural supply chain. As as explained, we have our super app that our clients download, access capital through it, but also get all what they need in order to understand their financials and manage their financials. Um, Through that, we're already seeing referrals and, you know, and a network effect creation. We're also tapping into an existing network, such as connections between the input retailers and their distributors alongside the big buyers and their suppliers. And by putting our solutions there, really allowing us to unlock further value and bring our solutions to a wider audience of Aave
0: Thanks to Michelle makena Wimby for that report. And you can find out more about Ave News at news gtcom Up next, we're talking Phonio with chef Pierre Tiam. Pierre Tiam is a chef, author and social activist, best known for bringing West African cuisine to fine dining. He's also a long-term member of IFAD's Recipes for Change chef community. So you've heard of FOMO, Michelle.
1: Hmm. Actually, Brian, I don't know what that is, but I really, really want to know.
0: And in that nutshell is exactly what FOMO is. It's fear of missing out. Michelle, thank you for giving me that. But what I want to talk to you about is something totally different. It's not FOMO, it's phonio, which sounds uncannily familiar. It is an ancient grain which dates back thousands of years. Pharaohs were eating it back in ancient Egypt, and it's having a resurgence. It's something you can even pick up on Amazon. It's a millennial superfood with a social conscience, and it makes lovely porridges, puddings croquettes and even beer.
1: As executive chef and co-founder of the New York-based food chain Teranga, Pierre Tiam has introduced healthy ingredients such as fonio, directly sourced from farmers in West Africa. Pierre is also the executive chef of the award-winning restaurant Nok in Lagos and is the signature chef of the five-star Pullman Hotel in Dakar. His company, Yolele advocates for smallholder farmers in the Sahel by opening new markets for crops grown in Africa.
0: The company's signature product, Yolele Fonio, is a resilient and nutritious grain found in Whole Foods, Target, Amazon, and other retailers across America. I caught up with Pierre at his home in San Francisco to find out more from the innovative food champion himself. Pierre. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us here
6: on Farms Food Future. Tell me more about the, the the history of fonio. Fonio is believed to be the oldest cultivated grain in Africa, so it's been around over five thousand years. So it can be more resilient than that, right? It's been here for millennia. It used to be grown in an even much wider. Uh, zone than than right now. Right now, it's focusing most on West Africa, but it was grown all the way to even ancient Egypt. So that that was uh, the the spread of fonio, and there are traces. Archaeologists found fonio in pyramids, even uh, in burial grounds. So that's that's how far back fonio goes. It's a very uh, relevant uh, grain because uh, culturally, in places where fonio is being grown, it's been like more than just a, an ingredient it has cultural relevance we're talking about how the dogon people in mali call it the seed of the universe and and they have a name for fonio which is po the same name as they called the, the the brightest star in the in the in the in the sky sirius so that fonio is named after that star so in in brief that's this grain that has that's an ancient grain and most importantly It's a grain that's very, very resilient, that grows in poor soil, that can grow in poor soil and restore the soil. Because of its nature, Ifonio has deep roots that add nutrients to the soil. So it restores the topsoil just by its nature. It's a grain that's drought resistant, um, which is very important as we know um, water is is a big issue, it's going to get more and more of an issue. And so a grain that's drought resistant like fonio, that can grow in poor soil and restore the soil is a grain that we need to pay attention to. And most importantly, is a is a very it's a nutrition powerhouse. Fonio is is protein dense and and it it's more, for me as a chef, uh, another aspect of Fonio is the fact that it, it cooks easily.
0: Yeah, where did you first
6: come across Fonio? Were you aware of it
0: as a child? Was it part of your diet or did you come to it later?
6: So interestingly, I grew up in Dakar, right? And and at the time, Fonio wasn't even part of the options. But my parents are from the south of Senegal, from Kadamans. And every time I would go during summer vacation to visit my grandparents, that's where I would have access to Fonio. So it was a grain that I had seen in my childhood, and I enjoyed when I went to spend some vacations in Casamas. but in Dakar, never had fonio, so that was a you know a, a, an interesting thing, and it really came back to my attention later when I, I hadn't had fonio for decades, and I had become a, a chef, a young cook in New York City, looking for inspiration in my tradition, in my in the food of my memory, and fonio was very much present in that memory. I uh, started working and writing cookbooks, and as I'm writing cookbooks, I decided to find uh, a way to connect my readers to the source of that the food I was talking about, and the source of that food meant the farmers, the the, the producers. And so, as I'm doing research for that cookbook, I traveled to the south and encountered the grain again, and that really. Took me way back to my childhood. That 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 connection with fonio, the the way you know it it, it it's just so unique. You know, it has a delicate aspect, and that's quite unique for uh, for for that grain. So it took me right back then, and I, I I started thinking about how to figure out a way to bring this grain to my audience to 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 to, to at my restaurants in New York City, and 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 then the the, the naive me thought in this dream, a way to even turn this crop into a world-class crop. This was really, to me, was like, this is possible. The grain is delicious. The grain, you know, looking further into it is nutritious. It grows in poor soil, so it had so much going for it.
0: Yeah, tell me, um, what can you do with Fonio and um, what are you doing with
6: it in terms of cooking? What How does, how does it cook up, as it were? Well, there, there, there's a saying you probably heard now, I, I like to use it. Fonio never embarrasses the cook, you <laughs> know. It's a bambara saying, and and that that means you can do so much with fonio. It really is a versatile grain, you know. When you cook it, um, the the traditional way, oftentimes they steam it, but you can also cook it on a stove top, and it looks like couscous, you know. So it's a it's a tiny grain, you know, almost the size of sand, and it's fluffy and separated when you cook it this way. But you can also turn it into a porridge. Which is also another traditional method of cooking fonio. So instead of using it, um, two uh, two cups of, of broth or water for one cup of fonio, you add, you you multiply the amount of broth or liquid. For four to one. And that becomes this porridge. And that porridge could be a breakfast porridge, it can be sweetened, it can be, depending on the liquid you use, you can even turn it into a pudding. You know, I, I have Fonio chocolate pudding that's quite popular at the restaurant, Fonio chocolate pudding with honey roasted mango. But I mean, and you can also turn it into a first course. You can make Fonio croquettes, you can make Fonio salads. You know, there's, there's, there's no limit. We have fonio flour in the market among our products that you're learning now, so you can even bake with fonio. So, so I am um, so uh, to answer your question, I even even want to send you to my last cookbook, the fonio cookbook, that really is uh, not only talking about the journey of fonio. We traveled with a photographer, spent time with the farmers harvesting fonio, but then we started to would uh, introduce the readers to recipes, the traditional recipes and the imagined recipes. And in the book, you have like, you know, uh, 50 plus recipes of different ways of, of 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 cooking Fonio. And they're all as exciting as, as the others. So they, you can do so much with Fonio. And
0: as there's so much to say about Fonio, we'll be catching up with Pierre later in podcast 42. In podcast 39, we heard from IFAD's president, Alvaro Lario, In podcast 40, we focused on the Indigenous Peoples Forum. And in podcast 41, we celebrated International Women's Day.
1: And next month, we'll be talking to the new Acting Executive Secretary at the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity. And he'll be telling us all about the Global Biodiversity Framework and efforts to stop the loss of species, and how farmers can play their part.
0: Coming up now, I kid you not, farming can be a mucky business as we talk worm poo. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. Biofiltro is a company that's doing something innovative in wastewater treatment. My Anne Healy is Biofilter's chief sustainability officer. She explained that the company specializes in using worms castings or worm poo to remove contaminants from wastewater. They also generate worm castings, which is a nutritious and valuable addition for soil utilized to improve crop yield and soil health.
1: Worm castings or worm manure are the end product of the breakdown of organic matter by earthworms. In this report, Michelle McCain and discusses how biofiltro's technology works, its benefits, and its impact on small-scale farmers and on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. She asked Mai-Anne to explain in more in-depth about the process in which how biofiltro removes wastewater contaminants.
7: Water typically, you know, comes out of the facility, it's discharged and can be anything we can treat, you know, sanitary wastewater, access water from wineries, food processors, dairies, meat packers, a lot of kind of like organic or natural based influent waters. And what we'll do is we'll take the water as it flows out of the facility, we'll collect it in some sort of, you know, utilization tank or storage tank where sensors measure a lot of the water quality, understand the temperature, understand pH, And then what we do is we, through a control panel, we will then send the water out to ultimately what is called a system, our biodynamic aerobic. And from this equalization tank, we have a control panel and pump that will push the water and disperse it across the worm beds through the irrigation system. That is a very interesting process and somewhat complex.
4: And how does using biofiltral system or technology compare to the traditional methods of wastewater treatments?
7: A lot of wastewater treatment, what you do is you have to, you know, settle out or capture the solids, which can be done through mechanical filtration or settling tanks, the solids over time will settle and be collected, but then that has turned into sludge. And sludge is a, a byproduct essentially that you then have to manage and probably send to landfill. Afterwards, you're still left with oxygen deprived water, which most of the technologies around here, what they're gonna use to reintroduce oxygen is they're gonna be pumping or they're gonna have a lot of aeration and aerators. I mentioned at the beginning that a lot of other technologies generate sludge, what we actually generate is all of um, the solids in our system are being converted into worm castings, which is actually a very beneficial byproduct. Thank you for that in-depth answer, May. Uh, Coming to my other
4: question, I'd like to know how appropriate is this technology slash innovation for small-scale farmers in developing countries? Tell us some of the examples you
7: have, and is it affordable? Uh, We have, you know, Systems that can range in treating a couple hundred gallons a day to a couple million gallons per day. So with our beta system, what it needs is surface area. For a developing countries, you could you know seek alternative methods of what, how, and where you build the system. But still, again, if you can guarantee the surface area and a you know a reliable process, it should be pretty reliable.
4: Given the current climate change situation. Can you tell us about the role of biofiltro in reducing greenhouse gas emissions?
7: One exciting thing that we found is when biofiltro entered the United States, one of the call to actions the U.S. had and the California had was looking for technologies that can remove nitrogen from the effluents, particularly from livestock or dairy farms. And so Biofilter installed a pilot in partnership with UC Davis in California, and the idea was just what percent of nitrogen we could remove from dairy livestock effluent, with the project goal being about 50 percent. Over the lifetime of the project, we actually averaged around 80 percent, so of course the question was, okay, if we were removing 80 percent of nitrogen from the water, where is it going, with the number one question being, are we gassing it off and contributing to greenhouse gases? So for years, you know, we went through a lot of research, UC Davis did a lot of research, and ultimately what they found is that our system is capable of converting all of the nitrogen from water into N2, which is a benign gas. It's the most plant available form. You know, again, the majority of farms worldwide, what they will do is they will take the liquid manure from a farm and then they will store it in a large lagoon. That lagoon can sit there for 60 days, and over time, all of those nutrients, all of those solids are breaking down and gassing off methane, carbon dioxide, ammonia, all of these harmful emissions. But when you install filter, again, we will filter out and remove a lot of the contaminants within this four-hour process. And in doing so, the water after our system is discharged to what has now become a clean water pond. You know, it is no longer emitting any of these greenhouse gases. So we are actually preventing the formation of greenhouse gases in the first place. And the studies that we have seen suggest that we can basically generate up to seven carbon credits per cow that is discharging into our system. Explain to us
4: how exactly does the use of warm castings as a soil amendment benefit crop
7: yield and soil health? what makes uh, worm castings so interesting is the microbial activity or the the diversity that you can find in worm castings. And really what you're doing when you use or apply is you're applying, you know, a army per se of microbes and bacteria that when mixed into your soil, uh, they are the ones that are actually the nutrient cyclers. They're the ones that are going to take the nutrients and bury, you know, burrow down and deliver it into the roots. And so it's improving... You know nutrient cycling in the soil for your crops, it's also producing aerobic conditions as well as water retention because all of those microbes moving around in the soil they're also creating air channels or tunnels essentially that's enabling again for the cycling of air and water through the roots and then providing a diverse and rich microbial activity. you're also just improving overall soil health soil diversity. And at the same point, you know, healthy soil can grow better root uh, structure, which can improve crop either yield or health of the plant itself.
4: I'm impressed by your understanding and BioFiltro's contribution and the impact that you're making. Please share with us about some of the successful projects BioFiltro has completed in the past.
7: So people always ask us, you know, can your system handle the cold or can it handle the heat? Our, I would say, most interesting uh, location is we actually have a system operating on Antarctica. We are handling the domestic or sanitary wastewater from a village or a, a base there, essentially for the Chilean Air Force Base. Another facility that we have is in central California. It's our largest winery facility in the world. Through the use of worms, we are recycling up to 1.15 million gallons per day. And then we also have a dairy facility uh, that's also handling the discharge of 6,500 milking cows. So again, if you're talking about impact and scalability, I think it's just, for me, having worked at Biofilter for so long, such an intriguing or an amazing thing that ultimately what is the same technology can be applied at so many different industries and have the success and the simplicity across industries as well is really remarkable. That was Mayan,
1: Chief Sustainability Officer at BioFilter. Next, we talk data.
0: You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. And welcome back to our ongoing mini-series from the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, which is currently hosted by IFAD. The platform brings together donors that believe the best way to tackle global poverty and hunger is to develop agriculture, reshape food systems, and invest in rural communities.
1: Its vibrant network of 40 influential donors includes international development agencies, financial institutions, intergovernmental organizations, and foundations. This time, I'm in London to talk about the importance of accessible, accurate, and timely data with Claire Malamet, CEO at the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data and a close partner of the Global Donor Platform. Claire, thank you so much for joining us on the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development segment uh, in the EFAD podcast. It's a real pleasure to have this conversation with you today.
8: Thank you. It's great to be here. And I'm very excited for this conversation.
1: We start all of our segments wanting to know the same thing, and that is, what are the issues that keep you up at night?
8: I've recently been doing a lot of travelling, so I've been in lots of different time zones, and so it doesn't take much to keep me up at night. It's always, for me, a debate between my inner optimist and my inner pessimist. I always want to think the best of people and feel that new opportunities are exciting and positive, and in the world of data, that's not hard. We're seeing amazing new things all the time, satellite imagery that can give us a real-time picture of what's happening to the earth and incredible opportunities for people to feed into data through new technologies and so on. But of course, with that comes huge risks. And the thing that I worry about is whether inadvertently we are reproducing the inequalities that we see all around us in these new digital systems. One of the things that caught my eye recently, that new OpenAI chatbot, chat GPT, is kind of all over the news. Some of the concerns about the potential for that technology to be abused was to recruit a lot of workers in Kenya, for example, to monitor the platform. Some journalists found that those um, workers are really not being paid very much at all. I worry about whether all of us who are involved in different ways, are doing enough individually, organizationally, to make sure that we're not just reproducing the mistakes of the past, but actually doing something which is going to create that sort of better future that we all know is possible, but won't happen unless we actively try to make it.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Claire. And also for pointing out issues behind the data that may not always be immediately obvious. People often think that data is boring. Now what would you say to that? (laughs)
8: Well, data can be boring. There's no point in pretending that it's not. What we perhaps forget is that actually we're all using data and absorbing data all the time. During the pandemic, we all became experts in the R number and we were poring over the figures every day about infection rates in different countries. We care deeply about data and are fascinated by it. Data is a tool. And it needs to be used by individuals, by governments, by powerful institutions to make decisions. The way to make data interesting is to not talk about the data, but to talk about what it's used for and how it can improve lives and to relate that to things that people really care about all the time.
1: Could you share some of the stories behind what the data in agriculture and food systems is telling us? And why is that important to achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals and in making progress in rural development?
8: Data can enhance the stories that we tell about the situation of the world and the people in it. We perhaps read a story about one person who is facing hunger, who is facing insecurity. We're moved by that story. But we don't know, is that just one person or is that the whole world? Or we need data to put our stories into context and to understand what to do about it. And of course, we know on food and agriculture that the data is not going in the right direction. 349 million people now across 79 countries are facing acute food insecurity this year in 2023. And that's 62 million more people than two years ago.
1: Yes, those numbers are definitely not telling the story that we want to hear.
8: But the data can also show us some places where things are perhaps looking slightly more optimistic, or at least where people are acting to change those numbers and point us towards some of the solutions. In Senegal, the satellite data has helped the government to understand where different agricultural activity is going on across the country, different climatic zones that people are facing and it's helped make the whole agricultural system more resilient in the face of the climatic pressures. In Kenya, there's been a really groundbreaking collaboration between the private and public sectors, and that's led to a food security dashboard that's helped the government to understand where food aid needs to go, where supply chains have been disrupted during the pandemic, and help tackle some of those food insecurities. Data also allows us to relate different things to each other. We know data on worsening food security reflects the impact of climate, it reflects disruptions caused by the war in Ukraine, and it's data that helps us to understand in any given situation what is the driver and how are these different things intertwined. And how can we build that kind of resilience to shocks that you need that only comes by addressing different areas of policy all at the same time?
1: How does working with a platform like the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development uh, fit into this bigger picture of having accessible, accurate and timely data? I think
8: donor platforms, donor coordination is absolutely critical. Data costs money and some of the new technologies in particular that are available require upfront investment costs and training to be able to realise the benefits. And we know the reality is that in many countries, donors are at least going to be part of the story in helping governments to realise the benefits of data that exists. The Global Donor Platform is a really good example of this. Donors treating data, not just as a necessary requirement of any individual project or program, but a strategic cross-cutting issue.
1: Claire, could you give us an example of this approach
8: During COVID, we worked with Somalia training the National Statistics Office to use satellite imagery combined with other kinds of data to form a much more accurate picture of the population, of the vulnerabilities. We trained people, we made sure they had access to the imagery. And that meant that some months later, when the tropical cyclone hit, they were able to use exactly the same skills, the same data to manage some of the humanitarian needs and response from the cyclone. It's about that sort of strategic investment in systems that can then pay off again and again. That's why mechanisms that drive collaboration within sectors like the Global Donor Platform are so critical to make sure that all of the different investments are adding up to support for the whole system that will then pay off again and again across sectors and help to strengthen data systems. It's also just great value for money for donors. We did some research that showed that for every $1 that's invested in data, we can expect a return of about $32. It's challenging for donors, but it's very much worth their while to get this right.
1: Thank you, Claire. And we look forward to following your organization's work at wwwdata sdgsorg the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data.
0: Thanks to Michelle for that report. In February, Claire's organisation, together with IFAD, the European Commission and the Global Donor Platform, co-organised a gathering of donors and data organisations to assess where things stand a decade after the data quantum leap in agriculture and food systems. To find out more about this topic and the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, go to www.donorplatform.org. Next, we hear from Green Ants.
1: You're listening to podcast 42 of Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. And we're talking innovation. Green Ants is a company that gives a value to trees and helps the farmers that own them turn that into cash for sustainable investments. Mario Simaco is founder and CEO of Green Ant. He explained that by using remote sensing to monitor trees, Green Ant checks on how much CO2 is being pulled out of the atmosphere.
0: This is then turned into NFTs, or non-fungible blockchain tokens, which can be cashed in for Green Ant crypto coins. One Green Ant crypto coin equals one kilo of carbon stored. This, in turn, can be spent by farmers to access finance as well as store wealth. Or they can be used as collateral for borrowing money to invest in climate change adaptation. Mario told me where they're working
9: now. We are mostly working in Thailand right now. Our partner is uh, uh, the Thailand Institute of Scientific and Technological Research, and uh, we have other several partners among NGOs uh, or uh, other institutions in Thailand. But we also have been invited to work in, uh, in, uh, in Tanzania um, and in Papua New Guinea. So in future, we will, uh, we will uh, um, apply this project in other places uh, and in other countries. But for now, we, have, we are on, only up and running in Rakhon, Nakashima, Thailand.
0: So um, you mentioned the countries that you'll be rolling out into in the future. Where do you see yourself in, in the next four years?
9: In, uh, in the next four years, we aim to be well-launched across Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is the region, one of the region which is mostly most exposed to uh, climate change. But also the region in which uh, financial inclusion is higher because like in thailand eighty nine percent of the population has a bank account, and therefore it is the place where to start innovating financial tools for counteracting climate change. so we aim to be uh, well rooted in southeast asia uh, in um, especially in in uh, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and Papua New Guinea, um, but also we aim to be in, uh, um, to work in uh, in Tanzania and to work in Europe.
0: That was Mario Simaco from Green Ant. You can find out more about them at greenant, greenantoneword.farm. Coming up, our newest Recipes for Change chef, Juan Quintero, joins us here on Farms Food Future.
1: This is Farms Food Future. Chef Juan Quintero is a Colombian culinary genius and part of the Recipes for Change team. He's shaking things up in the kitchen by cutting down on food waste. From menu planning and ingredient ordering to composting and repurposing leftovers, he's got some tasty tricks up his sleeve to keep things sustainable. He also shares how sourcing ingredients from local, environmentally friendly producers not only helps the planet, but also supports the community. Here is our report from Michelle McKenna mrimbi Welcome to this month's IFAD podcast on farms, food, future. My
4: first question would be, why did you join Recipes for Change?
5: Uh, I did join Recipes uh, for Change because uh, as a Colombian, I feel that we have many challenges to face in terms of food uh, sovereignty, food uh, security, and everything that belongs to sustainability, uh, particularly in my country, because we have still to develop our, our agriculture, but at the same time, we are one of the richest countries in the world. Uh, so it's a real paradox that we haven't uh, been able to uh, build a future in our uh, food system. I'm a chef, so I truly believe in the importance of the leadership of chefs in this sense. So I think Recipe for Change is very efficient tool to build bridges between chefs and communities in the particular areas as I mentioned, Colombia or any other part of the world, in order to help them to transform uh, their food and um, through their products, look for better opportunities uh, and a better future.
4: Thank you for that, Chef. Can you tell us about a particularly memorable or impactful dish that you've created and how it promotes sustainability?
5: Uh, Yes, I'm very passionate by pastry, by dessert, actually. So we developed this plate, this dessert, inspired in Colombian art. So it's basically a sculpture of uh, Fernando Botero's artist. He's very famous because of the uh, big shapes of these women and uh, uh, objects. So we did a sculpture in uh, chocolate, but our question uh, was like, how do we select chocolate in our restaurants, our set? And the answer is that, unfortunately, uh, cocoa uh, is a commodity. So commodities is very complex economic aspect. And at the end, producers, farmers of the cocoa fields are the less considered part of the whole chain. So we found out that picking the right chocolate would ensure the farmers to earn fair money because of their job. So we basically through one choice can, can uh, uh, change people's lives. We collaborate with companies that process the chocolate through clean energy processes. So it's a fair chocolate, it's a clean chocolate, and of course the taste uh, belongs to a particular place. So when you taste it, you are really connecting the dish to this area. So basically it's a dessert that shows sustainability through the right collection of uh, ingredients.
4: And being in constant interaction with customers and members of the community, how do you engage with and educate your customers and the community as well about sustainable and just food systems?
5: Uh, Well, the restaurant is very efficient and uh, dynamic space. Because of the interaction between uh, customers and uh, people in general, between them and also between we chefs, our ideas, and the one who is sitting on the table. So we try to communicate in the menus, written, and also talk with the customers the origin of the ingredients, how do uh, uh, we select them, the reason why we pick this farmer this producer instead another one the importance of cooking one food in this way because it belongs to an uh, ancient technique so we preserve culture and knowledge because of the nutrition so we let uh, people understand that if we cook something in this way is because we take care about their uh, nutritional value uh, so it's about health at the end. we don't want to be protagonists of uh, what we do because in a food uh, systems, there are many actors, and we are just one of the whole uh, process. so the importance of a farmer is the same as someone who distributes food, someone who sells chef uh, waiters who are in charge in restaurants to make people feel comfortable. So in every moment, we uh, try to let this information travel through until the final customer uh, really perceive the job, the fork that is behind every, every dish.
4: Indeed, that is very interesting to hear. Chef, tell us, how do you strive to reduce food waste and minimize environmental impact in your kitchen?
5: Well, that's a very interesting question because I honestly, in all the aspects that touches sustainability in a chef's lives, I think food waste is the most important and the matter that really we can act and change many things right now. Because there are other situations that require more time and uh, it's so complex that it really doesn't depend about one actor. It's just the desire and the awareness that everything that we buy represents a resource that has to be used at 99%. So food waste has to be controlled since the beginning, even before the product arrives to the restaurant, using the whole product. I give you an example. If we buy zucchini uh, to a farmer, instead of using the fruit itself, the long green thing that we are used to cook, we have to um, realize that from the zucchini plant, we can use leaves, we can use flowers, we can use use stems. So food waste is reduced even choosing to uh, cook the whole plant instead of just one part. And these uh, aspects also can be used in, uh, with animals. For example, instead of buying just one part of a uh, lamb, we can buy the whole lamb. So it's an economic uh, save at the, at the end because we work in a business activity, of course. But also it's a respect to the animal because every single part of the animal would be used at 100%. Uh, Secondly, once the product arrives to the restaurant, we have to make sure that we use everything, like parts of vegetables to use uh, to make soups, broths, staff meals. We can use creativity and innovation to minimize the waste. And finally, in my daily job, I realized that more consciousness and awareness in the prepared foods For example, when we make banquets, events, food which is still good and well-prepared can be wasted just because of the laziness or the lack of articulation between uh, people to, for example, give these to families in need, to associations that can just get these foods and give to uh, people that need to feed their, their children. So I think it's considered food From the beginning until the end of the process, then we can really act against the the food waste.
4: Lastly, we'd like to know how do you see your role as a chef evolving to address the global challenges of climate change and food insecurity?
5: I think the chef has a very crucial and important opportunity right now becoming a leader. Our role, I think, is use this talent creativity, imagination, problem-solving skills in order to put that at the service of the community, the one that is around us, but also the ones that, for example, in another part of the world need solutions. For example, variety, a crop that uh, communities used to grow, but they don't know how can they transform it in, in order to uh, give added value to this and maximize the benefits we can give back to the community. We can also be efficient communicator and storyteller of the importance of uh, being aware of the food system problem we have right now and how can we at the restaurant, at the business, but also at home, try to give our contribution to change it. Uh, So it's about also communication. And uh, the last aspect, I think, the cultural change that we have the opportunity to be in contact with because uh, we like to cook foods from all around the world, uh, ingredients, spices, you know, that comes from uh, many areas of the world. So we are all the time in contact with knowledge that can be transported to another uh, context. In order to enrich our 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 knowledge how we treat a a product, there is a very beautiful story about the the corn that was used for American indigenous uh, before Spanish people arrived. That is cooking the corn in the in lime in the very alkaline solution to make tortillas, to make arepas, to make many things. And when a uh, uh, European brought these two. Oh, to France and Italy, for example, in North Italy. At the end, they didn't have anything else to eat but just corn. But they didn't know how to transform it. So they just grind it and make polenta, like a, a corn puree. But they start to get sick because of the lack of D3 niacin uh, vitamin. So that's important importance, like how even one product used in different parts of the world Need also the knowledge about how to trade it.
0: Thanks to Michelle McCain and Wimby for that report, and you can read more about recipes for change and Chef Juan Quintera at www.ifad.org forward slash recipes for change. Coming up, we head back to Talk Phonio with Pierre Tiam.
1: You're listening to Farms Food Future. With Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson. Now it's time to check back in with EFAT's Recipes for Change chef, Pierre Tiam. Earlier in podcast 42, we heard about the versatility of West Africa's premier ancient grain, Fonio. Now it's time to hear some more.
0: What are its main benefits as
6: opposed to other grains that would be used around the world? Um, well, in addition to being gluten free, uh, Fonio. Is a grain that is quite rich in two amino acids, and those amino acids are cysteine and methionine. And the difference is that Fonio has it in abundance, and most of the major grains are deficient in those amino acids. So that's, that's really one in, interesting aspect of Fonio, not only that it's protein dense, but it has a particularly uh, a huge amount of those two amino acids and 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 not to mention the other positives that come with for you uh it's it's scores very low on the uh, glycemic index so which is a uh, really great for people who are suffering of chronic disease like diabetes you know so for, so so it it has advantages on the on, on the health aspect you know for diabetes you know for celiac disease because gluten-free so so you can you can uh really go on and on there's there's much more that are being Discussed about fonio. Unfortunately, there needs to be more research being done on fonio and all those other underutilized crops. Are, when you look at the amount of uh, money spent on research in, in, for these crops, compared to the one spent on the usual suspect, you know wheat, corn, and 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 soy, etc., it's just it's just sad. You know, it's just sad because we we are ignoring. Those crops that are actually offering a solution to global food security, not only for Africa, for 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 the world. I mean, these underutilized crops are offering that solution, and we need to spend money researching on those and and, and identifying ways to 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 really improve the seeds, and 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 we will be offering ourselves a chance to 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 feed the world, you know, you in a way that's like. A, with integrity you know first of all and that's good for the planet as well you know as well as as uh, as our own health
0: yeah coming to my my last question um you're very much the 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 ambassador for fonio you you've brought it to a huge amount of attention to this this crop and um what do you need now and what is the next step where where you you mentioned there more research well, what would you like to see coming in 2023 to bring Fonio to more
6: tables. So one thing I realized is, is important that we take agency of, of uh, where to move forward. You know, one thing we are thinking about is to create an alliance around Fonio on all the stakeholders, and and, and not only Fonio. I, I believe that alliance Fonio should be definitely um, taking the lead because of the appeal it has in the market right now, but it would be a, a, a missed opportunity to to. To ignore the other underutilized crops like millet, like Bambara groundnuts, and all of those need to be really part of this alliance that will get from researchers to farmers to um, to to marketers to you know brands to 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 big big food industries that are all going to be together in, in thinking and connecting all the pieces and and really support the research, invest in the research support the small farmers in better agricultural practices. I mean, you know, IFAD should be part of that alliance in some capacity. So that's my, 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 my battle now is to figuring out a way to, to, to get the, the, the right team to, to, to build this alliance and get everyone on board. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, I will certainly be going off to look up
0: my Phonio recipes and it sounds delicious and a very you know intelligent option Thank you for joining us, Pierre. To find out more about Pierre Tiam, his cookbooks, Yo Leili and Fonio, go to Piertiam1Word.com. All links can be found in our show notes. Also, check out Pierre's chefs page and the other Recipes for Change chefs at www.ifad.org forward slash recipes for change. Up next, environment reporter Kasa Alam wraps up his experience in Bangladesh with the sixth and final report of his miniseries from the front line of climate change. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson in the studio with Michelle Tang.
1: Bangladesh is half the size of Italy. Nonetheless, it is home to almost three times the people With more than 180 million people living in such limited space, the way forward is not just about mitigating or adapting to the changing climate, but also about finding a sustainable way of doing so.
0: From walking on roads that can withstand the impact of floods to stepping on a newly formed island, Kasser has visited IFAD projects across the country. He wraps up his experience in Bangladesh with a sixth and final report, tries to answer one final question. What is the country's
10: future going to look like? I've nearly come to the end of my trip in Bangladesh. It's been incredible to learn about the country of my grandparents and how it's adapting to climate change. There are more than 180 million people living here side by side in limited space. And one of the country's biggest challenges has been making sure there's enough food
11: to eat. Now what is interesting in Bangladesh is the growth rate is relatively low for an Asian country. It's near to 2.2 at the moment. The major problem is that the country is already very full and very densely populated. So we need to find also agricultural or food systems which are labour intensive, efficient, but also produce healthy foods.
10: Arnul Hamelers is the Bangladesh director of IFAD, an organisation trying to help stimulate growth and development.
11: I think the focus for the last 20 years has been very much on food security, getting everybody enough to eat. I think we've passed that stage now. Now we need to work on earning money in the countryside. But in a sustainable way.
10: Rice is by far and away the most plentiful crop in Bangladesh. It's a staple that most eat at least once a day. And farmers are now being encouraged to try and grow other crops, like fruits and vegetables, to support a good diet. One of those is beans. So this is really valuable. This is a a high-yield crop, what they're trying to move towards to try and get more money for themselves, because these types of uh, dried seeds, when you sell them, they, they taste really nice. They're a good source of protein. Therefore, it's something that they're trying to sell more of and make more money. The problem for many farmers has been choosing how to develop their land properly to give them the best chance to get as much money as they can. I've come to this farm to learn about one way they're doing that, the social method.
12: One kind of new technology innovated by the CDSP. Mm-hmm and it is called surgeon method of cultivation yeah and it is a new technique in 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 this area because the low-lying area it was not any any crops could be grown so after introducing this uh, certain type of subject method of cultivation they can uh, prepare the uh, ditch
10: and also the ridge so this is such an ingenious way of doing some some cultivating now some farming actually because look space is at a premium and most people can't actually afford to have that much land so what they're doing now is getting more bang for their buck because as you can see underneath they've got some water they've got some space for fisheries for for growing fish to eat to sell but also on the top here they've put this netting down and that is where using these mounds they can grow these beans so same space but they're able to grow two different um, produce and then sell them and get more money for what they used to, which obviously everyone is happy after that. And local farmers have been able to expand their business, sell more and invest the cash back into their families as a result, like this woman.
8: We grow these beans in our home yards. It's very profitable. After we eat them and also sell them in the local market. With the income, I can send my children to school.
10: Is that something that now you couldn't do before?
8: I did not know about the profit of growing hyacinth beans until recently. I learned about it after moving to this new char.
10: So what are your hopes then for your kids, because you can send them to school?
8: I hope my children have access to education, that they become educated and help my community one day.
10: Arnu thinks this is brilliant to help the country domestically.
11: Now we need to make this next step because Bangladesh is becoming a a low-middle-income country, wants to make that step. It's plain to see how much this
10: country has come on at this thriving, floating market. Farmers from all over come here with their products to get a fair price, and then it's taken to the capital and all around the country on boats, the fastest way to move goods in Bangladesh. Bangladesh.
12: It is a very important uh, marketplace, and you see uh, all the tomatoes, the brinjal, and other agricultural products.
10: Yeah, more uh, just coming yeah. in. <laughs>
12: these are these are produced uh, in nearby the area, and uh, this will transported to other places, uh, Bhurro and Dhaka, uh, to get the more prices. Uh, whenever there was no submersible road, yeah. all the tomatoes are rotten here. That's and if tomato was uh, sold uh, one taka or two taka per kg, yeah. at the same time, the same tomato was sold in uh, in Dhaka in 25 taka per kg. So uh, the producer get very very low price, but the consumer buy with a, with a more price. Yeah. Now there is a uh, negotiation so if it is it is sold in in dhaka in 25 taka yeah. now now the farmers are getting at least 10 15. a little
10: bit more money
12: yeah 10 to 15 times more
10: this is all really fresh produce from around the area and now these really hard working farmers they're able to get more money for this brilliant produce than they would have been. when there were transport problems and there wasn't the infrastructure and the roads in place all the fruit all the vegetables would go rotten so they'd be getting basically about one or two taka for a kilo but now because they've been able to get it here faster they're able to transport it around the country faster and get more money for their produce which means that they will all get richer have better profits And ultimately, this region will prosper. So I think that's a really, really positive of this infrastructure project. And while that's good, it's not enough. According to studies, nearly half of Bangladesh's population works in agriculture, with more than 70% of its land dedicated to growing crops. But even with all that, the country only gets about 13% of its GDP from farming. I find that quite staggering, to be honest. Arnu Hamelers says that's a priority for the future.
11: And that's what we will focus on, that we can have a countryside which is productive, connected to the market, and even, if possible, connected to international markets. I also think it will be very difficult because there's too many people in the countryside. So you need to find crops which are labour-intensive and which are exportable, uh, which can generate real incomes and a future for this countryside.
10: Whatever the future does hold for Bangladesh, it's on the right path. GDP has slowly been increasing over the last decade, as has literacy rates, whilst the number of children living below the poverty line has been steadily going down.
11: Yeah, Bangladesh had this image of being one of the poorest country, countries in the world, huh, where millions of people died from hunger, and that has happened. But I'm so impressed, really, (laughs) uh, to now see Bangladesh as really a a middle-income country, but also a middle-developed country. Their people are very hard-working. They all have a relatively good education. So there is an enormous potential. Um, so let's work on that potential. It's clear to
10: see that Bangladesh is a vibrant country with people trying to get by however they can. Despite all the challenges from climate change, the people here are trying to do what they can to make their future bright and prosperous. Thanks for watching this series called Bangladesh, the Climate Frontline. I look forward to bringing you more incredible stories about climate change in the future. That was Kasa Alam reporting
0: from Bangladesh. If you want to know more about his reports on IFAD projects and his work in general, you can check his YouTube channel, Kasa Vision. That's Q-A-S-A Vision. And that brings us to the end of episode 42. Many thanks to our fantabulous producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti.
1: Also to the rest of the team, our reporter, Michelle McKenna-Muyambi. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at wwwefadorg forward slash podcasts. Next month's episode 43 will be all about biodiversity. We'll be speaking with the Executive Secretary of CBD the Convention on Biological Diversity.
0: Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at ifad.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show.
1: Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of April with more news fresh from the farm.
0: And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson.
1: And from me, Michelle Tang and the team here at EFAD. Thanks thanks for for listening. listening.